Blood exposure is responsible for income loss equivalent to like 6 to 8% of GDP every single year. There's a massive burden of disease, that's what we're trying to, trying to address. G'day folks and welcome back to the Giving What We Can podcast, where we combine compassion with critical thinking as we explore how to use our resources to do the most good. I'm your host, Luke Freeman, and today I'm joined by Lucia Coulter, who is a doctor turned charity founder. Lucia recently co-founded the Lead Exposure Elimination Project, otherwise known as LEAP. LEAP works to eliminate lead poisoning worldwide by advocating for the regulation of lead paint. Lucia is also a member of the Giving What We Can community, where she used to be the co-president of our Cambridge chapter. So without further ado, here's Lucia. Lucia, welcome and thank you for joining me today. First up, I'd love it if you could tell me about the Lead Exposure Elimination Project. Thanks for having me, Luke. It's really great. So basically, what we are trying to do is reduce childhood lead poisoning in low and middle income countries. Um, and childhood lead poisoning is this really neglected but huge scale problem. It affects around one in three kids. It affects children's developing brains and is a neurotoxin. So it causes uh, neurodevelopmental problems like reduced intelligence, behavioral problems, reduced educational attainment and reduced future income later in life as well. Um, and then it also has these physical health problems. So it causes cardiovascular disease. It causes kidney disease, anemia, growth stunting, um, all of these impacts, which are... Uh, spread across this really huge number of children, around over 800 million children worldwide. Um, and in some countries, it's even thought that lead exposure is responsible for income loss equivalent to like 6 to 8% of GDP every single year. There's a massive burden of disease, I think 1% of the burden of disease at least. Um, and yeah, that's what we're trying to, trying to address. Wow, that's incredible. So can you tell me more about what LEAP does to reduce lead exposure? Yeah. So at the moment, we're focusing on lead exposure from paint. Um, we think it's a really important source of lead exposure. And we also think it has the strongest evidence base for being tractable to address. Um, so lead in paint has been banned in high income countries like UK, Australia, US for 50 years or so. Um, but in a lot of low income countries, uh, it's still being used in really huge amounts um, in many countries. Populations are growing quickly, urbanization is growing quickly, um, and so paint markets are growing and more and more lead is being added into the environment, it's being put on homes, being put in schools, and over time the lead on paint, lead in paint on walls forms dust and flakes, and then children get it in their mouths, um, and that's what causes lead poisoning in childhood. Um, but in terms of like what we actually do, so um, firstly, we identify countries where we think that there's a lot of lead in paint. Um, and then we go to these countries or we work with partners in these countries to carry out paint sampling studies where we basically go and buy a load of paint, um, do a bit of market analysis and uh, analyze it for lead content. And it's pretty crazy because this data just doesn't exist already. Like people really don't know is there lead in paint in a lot of countries. Um, so we find out and then uh, we share the information with um, the health ministries, the regulatory authorities, other important stakeholders. Um, and we say, this is a big problem. We raise awareness about the impact of childhood lead poisoning. We show them that there's a lot of lead in the paint. Um, and then we explain the solution, which is basically effective regulation of, of lead in paint, basically banning it um, for household use, at least, um, hopefully more broadly. And then we support them in introducing or enforcing regulation. Sometimes they might already have regulation that's just not being enforced or they might not have any. Um, so we can bring together stakeholders. We can provide technical advice and that sort of thing. And then the other part of it is... Um, we also work with the paint manufacturers themselves, so we can uh, offer them technical advice to help them switch to lead-free um, and access non-lead ingredients and that sort of thing. 
Um, yeah, so we hope that basically with that enforcement of lead paint regulation plus the support with the reformulation, then there'll be less lead paint on the market, uh, less lead paint use, um, less childhood lead exposure. And that will have an impact on children's health and well-being and future potential and all of that. Yeah, that's great. Um, I guess this is a, another example of problems that we you know, don't recognize because uh, they don't exist anymore in high-income countries. You mm. kind of assume that this is the case everywhere. Yeah, exactly. I think another reason why it's neglected is, is obviously partly this. It doesn't, it doesn't exist in, in wealthy and powerful countries so much anymore, or it does, but like um, kind of legacy problems, so like old lead paint on walls or old lead, lead in pipes. Um, yeah, so it's not affecting the most kind of wealthy and powerful people in the world. But then I also think there's just the fact that it's such an invisible problem. Um, like even compared to like, you know, neglect, traditionally neglected tropical diseases, like infectious diseases, like malaria or whatever. Um, I think lead is again different because although it's affecting one in three kids, you, you wouldn't know it because the effects that it has, these kind of neuro, neurodevelopmental problems, um, these health problems later in life, they're not things that you'll see someone suffering from and know that it's a, it's a result of lead exposure. Whereas like, you know, with malaria, you'll have, be having cyclical fevers. With TB, you'll be having, you know, cough and weight loss or whatever. But with lead exposure, it's not obvious. And so it doesn't seem like a priority problem to, to address or to even to research. Yeah. yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to recall that a lot of uh, crime reduction uh, in some high-income countries uh, was, you know, 15 years following the removal of uh, lead that was causing childhood development problems. Yeah, there are these absolutely fascinating correlations between reductions in environmental lead and reductions in crime. Um, and it's a trend that's seen in different countries um, and uh, like in different periods of time. So it's it seems that it could it could actually be having this societal impact as well of, of crime reduction when you reduce lead exposure. Um, I'd say the like the evidence for that is all very is 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 weaker than the evidence for the other impacts of of lead exposure, but it's it still seems to be quite fairly compelling um, and super super interesting as well. Yeah, just these kind yeah. of long run effects that if you are yeah. you're interacting yeah. with development. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and recently there was a study that came out uh, showing the impact of lead on personality traits as well over a lifetime. So um, there's some evidence that it reduces uh, conscientiousness and agreeableness, um, increases neuroticism and that sort of thing, um, which obviously at a population level, when so many people are exposed, you can imagine that having uh, really significant societal impacts. So, um, so far we have carried out a paint sampling study, um, that showed that paint in Malawi, solvent based paint in Malawi contains really high levels of lead. Um, and we shared those findings with the, uh, Malawi Ministry of Health and the Malawi Bureau of Standards and raised awareness with them about the impact of childhood lead exposure. And then as a result of our meetings with them and sharing that data, they've started actually uh, implementing lead paint regulation they've started monitoring paint for lead content um, and they're updating their paint standard to be in line with the who recommended limit for lead content um, and we're also working with manufacturers there um, to help them overcome any any barriers to switching to lead free um, so that's pretty cool because we've been going just for a few months we haven't even been around for a year yet and we've already uh, had this progress in in malawi getting lead paint regulation implemented um, and we've also run a paint study now uh, in Botswana, and we actually found that the paint on the market in Botswana is pretty much all, well, almost all imported from South Africa. And South Africa does have lead paint regulation, so we didn't fi find high levels of lead there. Um, and we're now also in the, in the process of running these paint studies in Zimbabwe and Madagascar as well. 
So yeah, that's what we've been up to. That's great. Yeah, I imagine regulation is quite sticky of a solution, especially when you get the manufacturers on board. Um, does Leap have plans to monitor and evaluate the continued success after the initial intervention? Yeah, yeah, I think definitely that's a priority of ours because um, we need to know if it's actually reducing the amount of lead paint on the market, which is what we care about. Um, well, a good indicator for what we care about, which is actually chartered lead poisoning. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, we'll be carrying out regular follow-up studies in all the countries where we run this intervention. Um, this will tell us if the enforcement's working um, and it will also kind of keep the pressure on, keep the momentum going for enforcement and compliance as well. The yeah. Malawi Bureau standards reckon that will be quite helpful because the sampling they do, the monitoring they do is like they go to the manufacturers and they do sampling audits, whereas we do market sampling. So it, it's kind of complementary as well to their monitoring. Um, and then if the compliance isn't increasing as quickly as we expect, we can, we can do other things as well. So we could, for example, um, increase the pressure a bit through like public and media involvement and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so you've got a couple of, uh, studies so far, you've got your first intervention, uh, working with government and, um, manufacturers. What are the plans mm -hmm. to scale up from here? Um, yeah. So the plan for year two, which is beginning next month um, is to expand our operations. So we would ideally like to carry out these paint sampling studies in eight more countries um, and then get started with the kind of advocacy and industry outreach in, in those where we do find high levels of lead and paint, which will probably be the majority of those countries. Um, so we'll be expanding our team. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are still over 76 countries with no lead paint regulation. And even more, which have regulation that's probably not being enforced. Um, and so the more quickly we can work in as many countries as possible, the more quickly the amount of lead paint being used can be reduced. And as I mentioned before, uh, this the use of lead paint is increasing quickly because of this population growth and urbanization. Um, and all of that, the paint going into the environment is going to be there for years and years to come. Um, so if we can replace that with safer paint as soon as possible, then our impact can be a lot, a lot bigger. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Have you learned anything along the way as to why this hasn't been a priority earlier? Um, I mean, in Malawi, it just wasn't known to be a problem. Um, there was no, there was no data to show that there was lead in paint. Um, the relevant stakeholders didn't know that lead in paint was a problem. I think there was kind of probably some, some impression that it, lead in paint was an outdated technology. Um, that had kind of naturally been phased out over time. Um, and so, yeah, just wasn't known to be a problem to address, um, which is pretty, uh, pretty wild. <laughs> that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's pretty fascinating. In Flint, Michigan, in the US, yeah. there was uh, you know, a lot of awareness around the lead problems they were having there. Again, that was pipes and their water supply. Mm. But you, know, you, you think that, that would have been a trigger for a lot of places to you know, yeah. start to think about, oh, yeah. What is our environmental lead exposure? Yeah. And another interesting thing is that there are even more sources that could be as important as paint uh, and could also be tractable to address that are problems in low-income countries that we don't know about because, you know, they just haven't been studied yet. Um, one that we'd like to investigate a bit more is lead in spices. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's, they, there was a study in Bangladesh recently that showed that a lot of turmeric has really high concentrations of lead. And that's because, really? um, yeah, they, the producers add yellow lead pigment to the turmeric root to make it a more appetizing color. 
um, because I think it can turn out a bit pale depending on like the conditions that it's, it's produced in. So they, so they add this lead, lead pigment, um, which, you know, really high levels of lead in a food, which you're directly putting in, into your mouth. So that's a problem in some places in Bangladesh. It's been shown to be a problem in uh, Georgia as well, the country, um, and probably is, is relatively widespread. Um, so we could start doing some sampling of spices as well. Um, and then see if we can apply a similar intervention to what we're doing with paint. Um, but yeah, there are probably more sources, um, and huge amounts of research yet to be done. Um, yeah. It's actually surprisingly transferable, the, the sampling mm. and then working with regulators and, 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 uh, manufacturers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Looking forward, uh, what do you see as the biggest risks to Leap's work? Um, yeah, so there are a couple of things that we've been thinking about a lot recently. I mean, one is that progress could slow down in Malawi. Um, it could take longer than we hope to actually reach the point of having less lead paint on the market. Um, like for example, if, if government or industry stop engaging or stop prioritizing it. Um, so far engagement's been really good and the momentum has been really good. Um, but that could slow down, um, for a number of reasons like, you know, COVID or just other stuff happening. There's huge, huge numbers of priorities, um, for these people. So, um, but there are things we can do if that happens, like we can start increasing, increasing the pressure through like, you know, public and media and that sort of thing. Um, working out what other barriers there might be. Um, another risk and uncertainty is, uh, like the extent to which our progress in Malawi is replicable in other countries. Um, we'll be able to get a better sense of that over the next year as we continue work in, in Zimbabwe and Madagascar and as we expand to other target countries as well. But it's hard to say at the moment. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, so before we move on to some other questions around charity mm. entrepreneurship and how you got to where you are, uh, I'd love to know how you recommend people support Leap. Um, yes. Yeah, so what you can do if you're interested in what we're up to, you can sign up to our newsletter on our website leadelimination.org and we can we can keep you updated with with study results that we're doing and everything else that's going on um we are fundraising at the moment as well so if you're interested in donating to a project like leap early stage charity working on lead exposure um then again on our website leadelimination.org you can uh you can you can donate um also uh if you are interested in seeing if there are kind of volunteering or internship opportunities we sometimes have some of those things that come up um projects so you can e email us um you can email me my email is lucia at leadelimination.org um and yeah if anyone has any kind of expertise or advice we're always looking for feedback we're always looking for advice um so yeah let us know Excellent. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience of going through charity entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, that was a great experience. It was really, really brilliant. Um, I went through the program in summer last year. Um, I think, I think without that, I wouldn't have had the, uh, confidence or support to start a charity at this point in my career. Um, and if I did, it probably would have also just had a lot of a, a lower chance of, of making quick progress or being high impact, cost effective. Um, so really brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, can you tell me a little bit more about what Charity Entrepreneurship did to help Lead get started and to mm -hmm. support throughout the process? Yeah. So the first thing is this kind of two month uh, incubation program um, and that 
yeah, that happened last summer. It was actually remote because of COVID, but it was still, yeah, it was pretty great. And um, that was where I decided to work on this intervention. They had done uh, research the previous year um, looking at what charity ideas to uh, recommend. And one of them was advocating for uh, lead paint regulations. So that was where we chose this intervention. It's also where I paired up with my co-founder, who was also on the program, Jack Graffiti. Um, and it's also where we got our, our initial seed grant. Um, and basically what, what they do during the program as well as kind of setting you up with all of this stuff is they teach you just a huge amount of like really practical and, and relevant content um, about how to start a charity. So um, how to make a cost effectiveness analysis, how to plan monitoring and evaluation strategy, how to hire, how to, you know, make a six month plan, all, all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah highly recommend for anyone anyone remotely interested um, and I probably I think a lot more people should consider because I, I never really considered it um, until I saw someone else do a similar thing and then I was like oh that's a that's a career option that's a high impact thing I could actually probably do um, yeah and the other thing they do is they give uh, like ongoing support so it, like almost a year and we, st we still have weekly mentoring with the charity entrepreneurship team and then there's this whole community of um, other previous incubatees who've also started charities that we get support from it's it's really fun and satisfying to be learning a lot really quickly um and it's also just really fulfilling to actually be doing something that has a high chance of of being impactful or relatively high chance of being impactful and and making a difference um so that's really great there are things about it that are a lot more stressful than even working as a junior doctor during a pandemic um like the kind of the uncertainty you know you never really know if you're doing the right thing uh there's a lot of, it's very high stakes, like you really want to get it right. And it's all on you and your co-founder. Um, but yeah, that's, I think, just just part of doing something with like, you know, high expected value there. It's, it's risky, but but uh, potentially, potentially really good. So it's been a really good experience um, overall. I'd be interested in hearing how you found the transition from uh, kind of your medical work to being in a charity and uh, doing something quite different. Mm. Um. Yeah, it was a big, a big shift. I think, um, it's like one of the main differences is, uh, going from like playing a role in a system and knowing exactly what you're supposed to do to kind of working out from more first principles, like actually, what should I be doing? How do I prioritize things? Um, that's, that's quite a, quite a transition. Um, but it's also just a really fun one because it's part of being able to, uh, create something and then see things uh, different from how they would be if you weren't doing the thing. Whereas when you're part of a, a health system and you're working as a doctor, um, the most you can do is make sure things go how they're supposed to go. Um, <laughs> like, whereas, yeah, whereas when you're starting something new, they're going in a, in a way where they wouldn't have otherwise gone, like the counterfactual impact thing, I suppose. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I think the charity entrepreneurship support has been like made a huge difference in making that transition easier as well. Cause we have like th these mentors and people who've been through like the early stages of a charity startup themselves and can, and can give that guidance and understanding of what it's all like and the support as well. So that's been good. Um, I do miss medicine. I do miss clinical medicine a bit. Um, but I can still do some. So like I did a shift last week, um, in the emergency department just to be like, just kind of for fun um so that's nice <laughs> so it's I not been too for fun, fun. you do a shift yeah. of medical <laughs> work in the emergency room. um 
But yeah, I think that makes the shift easier because the other part of the of the shift is like an identity shift, right? Like being a doctor is like a super well-defined identity. Everyone understands and it's like well-respected. And then all of a sudden you're just doing something quite weird that a lot of people don't really get. Um, and that can be hard and it can be hard to, uh, yeah, it's just something difficult about that. So um, that's that's a bit of an adjustment as well, but it's all it's all good and you know i'm still a doctor i can still practice medicine a bit and that kind of thing which makes it makes it easier yeah yeah are you glad that you spent the you know not an insignificant amount of time uh in that training to have that um kind of both as kind of foundational work as well as you know um, a fallback and various other kind of benefits yeah i think so i don't know whether like if i could go back again I would have chosen to study medicine and practice as a doctor, but I definitely do feel that there are benefits from it. So like, like you say, the kind of the, uh, fallback option is really nice. It's a nice piece of security. Um, when I'm taking a quite a risky career decision, it's nice to know that, well, you know, I can always, I can always do that. Um, the other thing is I think, uh, studying medicine and practicing as a doctor gave me more kind of confidence in myself and my own abilities. Like I can do stuff. Um, and that's quite empowering and made me feel again, more confident to do something a bit more risky. Um, the other thing that I'm grateful for from, uh, medicine is like the credibility that it gives you of being a doctor when you're working with, you know, health ministries or partners in other countries who are also doctors. Um, it, it does help. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, and then, you know, you, you learn relevant stuff about health systems and healthcare and people you learn a lot about uh, communication and, uh, decision-making and all of these things that are pretty cross applicable as well. So, um, so I feel glad that I did it, but I not saying that it was the right, that it wouldn't have been better not to do something else, like maybe more, a more direct route into something impactful. Um, yeah. yeah. That being said, it's, um, hard to have a direct route into what you're doing right now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure it helps in, in evaluating, uh, you know, the work that you're doing as well. Um, mm -hmm. you know, having at least that, you know, foundational literacy in, in the medical side of things as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And the research literacy as well, like, um, part of, part of my degree and I've done a lot of like research and that sort of thing. And that's pretty helpful. Um, yeah. That's great. I'd like to wind back the clock a little bit and you yeah. know, tell us a little bit more about how you first encountered these ideas and kind of the spark of what inspired you to try and use your time and money and resources to do good in the world. I was probably around eight years old and um, one of my school friends, uh, actually, he he died of leukemia. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I, I just remember thinking a lot about, you know, how that's a really, this is a really bad thing. Like, this is really sad for like, you know, his family and his friends thought a lot about like, you know, the impact that has on his like mom and his little brother. And I remember like just being in my bedroom and like looking around at my stuff and being like, I would literally give away all of my toys, all of my clothes, everything to like, to change that outcome. Um, and of course, you know, you can't do that, but I, it got me thinking like you, there are actually things you can do to prevent people from dying. And I was aware that, you know, people in other contexts are kids are dying for preventable reasons. Um, and I started kind of feeling very uncomfortable with this idea that we would do so much for the people who are close to us, the people who we see and care about. Um, and yet we don't really apply that to people further away and um, people who other people care about just as much other people's friends. Um, so I think that's when I kind of first 
started reflecting on that not being quite right. Um, and I, I don't know if I really kind of like formulated exactly what that meant for how I wanted to live my life, but definitely kind of had this growing uh, unease with like the norm of just focusing on, on the people around you um, and not thinking about the impact you can have on, on others as well. Um, so I think that was probably, probably the first thing. And then, um, when I was around 12 years old, I went on a camping holiday with my grandpa and I decided to bring a couple of books. I've never really been a big reader, but I was like, you know, I'll read thing people do on holiday. Um, <laughs> and I took, um, I took Twilight, highly recommend. Um, and I also took, um, uh, this collection of essays by Peter Singer that I just found on the bookshelf at home. It's called Writings on an Ethical Life. I don't think it's still in print, but, um, yeah. And one night I was reading, uh, Famine, Affluence and Morality. Um, and I, I know you're familiar with this, but the, basically the conclusion Singer has is like, uh, if it's within our power to prevent something bad from happening without sacrificing something of equal moral significance, then, we ought to morally do it. And it doesn't matter if that person is like a neighbor's child or if it's someone like 10,000 miles away. Um, and yeah, that, that essay had just a huge impact on me. Like I remember just having this like very like strong and overwhelming mix of emotions. Like one of, one of it, one of the emotions was like validation, like, and relief, like, okay, I've been thinking this is a problem for a while. I've been thinking this seems like the correct conclusion, but like, here is a legitimate philosopher in a book (laughs) (laughs) saying what I thought, uh, was, was probably true, but you know, I'd always doubt it because that's not how other people in my life seem to live their life or seem to agree with. Um, so that was, that was pretty cool. And then I guess the other, the other emotion with that was like, oh no, like if this is really true, then this has like huge implications for, uh, how, how we should prioritize things in our lives and has massive implications for how I should live my life, um, going forward. Um, so yeah, that was, that was big. And I think that kind of made it all a lot more concrete for me. Like, yeah, this is, this makes sense. Other people think so too. Um, let's, let's do something about it. Yeah. And at this stage in your life, did you know anyone else who thought similarly? (laughs) Um, no, just Peter Singer became, I became (laughs) the biggest fan. (laughs) I didn't really know anyone else. I I started talking about it with more people after this. Um, and yeah, started to find people, people who agreed. So that was cool. And then, um, and then when I was in high school, I heard about giving what we can. Um, and that was really awesome. And I was like, yes, this is, this is clearly a good idea. This giving what we can pledge. I'm definitely going to take that when I'm, when I'm old enough. Um, and that was nice to know that there's this community out there of, of other people thinking the same way. Um, and then when I got to university, I went to Cambridge where there was already an effect of altruism chapter. Um, and so I got involved there and that was brilliant. And then I, I in my third year, I, I co-ran giving what we can. And again, just uphill from there. I spent a whole six years at university doing medicine. And I think even out of all of that, it was the best part. Um, and part of that is just like, you get to meet other people who are already really engaged in these ideas and other people who've like thought about the same things as you. Um, and you get to discuss with them and learn from them. And that's really awesome. Um, and I'm, I think I'm still, yeah, I'm still friends with a load of people from, from, uh, the chapter back then. Um, and still having those people to, to learn from, discuss things with, you know, just like generally be inspired by is like really really helpful. Um, and yeah, just nice. Even, even if not helpful, it's just great. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think it also made me personally feel more motivated. 
um, when you're doing something with other people, it's just more motivating. So it helps help you take like more concrete actions as well. So, um, you know, taking the giving what we can pledge, becoming vegan, making career decisions, all of those like actual important steps are just way, way easier when you have other people around you doing the same thing or, or kind of validating that that's a reasonable decision. Um, and then, and then the other thing I guess is it opens, opens up a lot of opportunities as well. So, you know, you meet other people going in the same direction as you, um, with the same values, and then you can work with them later. You can volunteer with them. You can get involved in other projects and organizations and, and that's really cool. So yeah, highly recommend the whole kind of getting involved in the community, uh, thing. Really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then in terms of like talking to other people about, uh, effective altruism and the pledge and that sort of thing, um, I think it's kind of the way, the way it usually seems to go is like, people already often kind of have these ideas and kind of agree. And then they just haven't found that this is a thing. Um, and so that's really awesome to be there when people find out that this is a thing that they like really matters to them and that there are other people and you can kind of be part of that, that journey of like uh, moving forward with taking those kind of core values and beliefs that people have and actually helping them like fulfill those and make it part of their life. Um, so that's really nice. Um, yeah. I'm going to finish up shortly, but I thought I would ask, you know, what are you most excited uh, about uh, on the plans for Leap and also personally in the next kind of 12 months? Um, so I'm very excited about um, expanding Leap. I'm excited to try and like multiply our impact in new countries um, and yeah, looking at how many children we can impact, um, how many dallies we can avert <laughs> sounds lame but like that's very exciting for me um and i'm excited about expanding our team um that would be really cool uh and also it's exciting to just uh be able to be part of uh like more engaged in the community and kind of talk to more people about um uh you know these kinds of options and even about like lead exposure and other neglected things um, and have that kind of uh, influence on other people as well. is really cool. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I want to say thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was really great hearing some of the nuts and bolts around Leap as well, having been a little bit uh, look, looking at things from afar and appreciating the work that you're doing and really great to hear some of the details. So that's really fantastic. Um, it was also really interesting hearing a bit about your story, um, including you know, some of the younger years as well, which I personally you know, empathize with a lot that things can start pretty early and it's really interesting to hear the path you took. So thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, really good to chat. Thanks so much for lending me your ears for the duration of this episode. I hope you learned as much as I did. The full transcript of this interview is linked in the show notes and we'll be posting highlights on YouTube. In our next episode, the tables will be turned as I'm interviewed by Joshua Ross from Humanitix. In the meantime, check out givingwhatwecan.org to learn more about effective giving and to join our community. Also check out effectivealtruism.org to learn more about different ways of using your resources to effectively help others. Until next time, keep on doing good. Good.